0: All right, we're in Acts chapter 20. I always feel like the bad guy when I break up all these wonderful uh, conversations that are happening. Acts chapter 20 is our text for today, and we're going to look at verses 13 uh, down through verse 38. Really, the rest of chapter 20 is uh, is in view today. And this passage really deals with Paul's uh, farewell speech to the Ephesian pastors. These are not Paul's uh, last words before he dies, but they are his last words uh, to the pastors in Ephesus, and they come with an emotional punch. Uh, I looked up some famous last words this week, and, and some of those are, are kind of funny. Uh, some of them are a little bit strange, and, and some of them are very touching. Uh, Composer Gustav Mahler died in bed while he was conducting an imaginary orchestra, and his last word was Mozart. Uh, Raphael, the famous uh, Renaissance painter, his last word was simply happy. Joseph Wright was a linguist, and he edited the English dialect dictionary, and his last word before he died was dictionary. (laughs) Uh, Blues singer Bessie Smith She died saying, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of the Lord. Frank Sinatra died moments after saying, I'm losing. And maybe another notable, famous last word, a man by the name of Richard B. Mellon, at the turn of the century, uh, he was a multimillionaire, the president of Alcoa. And he and his brother, Andrew Mellon, had a seven-decade game of tag. Uh, When they weren't working together and business partners together, uh, they played tag uh, every time they would see each other. And when Richard was on his deathbed, he called his brother over and he whispered, last tag, and Andrew remained it for four years until he died. What would you say if you knew that your time on earth was coming to an end? What would be your farewell message who would you hope to hear it? And just so you know, your last words are being written now by the way that you live your life. Whether you're living in a way that will produce great guilt or regret, or whether you're living in a way that is for Jesus, and your last words can be triumphant, like Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. I think we would all hope to say that we have fought the good fight that we've finished the race, that we've kept the faith, that we have labored during our earthly years here in a way that impacts the kingdom, in a way that is not necessarily self-serving or self-absorbed or a life that's built for our own comfort and pleasure and success, but, but in a way that you can be grateful for the impact that you've had for all eternity. Paul's farewell speech gives us a blueprint, really, for the way in which he lived, so that he could declare those words to Timothy that he's fought the good fight. These aren't the only um, farewell speeches, by the way, in the Bible. Uh, There are a number of places where great men and women of God have said these last words. Jacob in Genesis 49 gathered all of the twelve sons together, and he pronounced a unique and special blessing over each of them. And he said, as my time comes to an end, he gave them instructions to be buried with Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah uh, and, and uh, on where to bury him. Moses composed an entire song recorded in Deuteronomy 32. And after he presented it, in Deuteronomy 32, it says, Moses came and he recited all the words of the song and the hearing of the people And when Moses had finished saying all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, so that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but this is your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you were going over to the Jordan to possess. Oftentimes a person's last words... um, reflect what's most on their heart, or the highest priority, or what's most important to them. Joshua said this in Joshua 14 through 15, "...now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away all the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve." whether those gods that your father served in the regions beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, and you know this verse, but as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. These are his some of his final words. One of my personal favorites is Caleb, one of the 12 spies along with Joshua who was preserved through the wilderness wandering. Listen to these words of Caleb uh, that are his final recorded words. He said, and now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, all these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And today, behold, I am this day 85 years old, and I'm still as strong today as I was in that day that Moses sent me. My strength now is just as my strength was then, going for war and coming in back. So now give me the hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. You heard that the Anakim were there and how they have great fortified cities. It may just be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. And in Caleb's legacy, he did conquer that. Can you imagine being 86 years old and saying that you're just as strong as you ever were and say, give me that hill, that mountain region where the, the Anakim were those giants that we heard about from Genesis 4 this past summer and Genesis 6? Caleb was incredible, and these some of his last words are challenging to us. But probably the most important last words were those of Jesus, uh, recorded in John chapter thirteen through seventeen. He knew that this was his final night with his apostles. And just let me uh, allow me to read a couple of passages from John thirteen through seventeen. In thirteen one through five, it says, "Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, having." loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the very end. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and He knew that He had come from God and was going back to God, He rose up from supper, laid aside His outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around His waist, and then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was around Him. Then He said, "'Let not your hearts be troubled,' Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Throughout John 13-17, through 17, including 17, where Jesus prays for the disciples and the apostles, and, and even for us who would believe in Him after, we have so many great quotes of Jesus' final words. Of course, His final words on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do, and um, the words that Jesus carried. Last words often carry a special power, a particular potency. And today, in Paul's farewell speech that he delivered to the Ephesian pastors, what did he say? How did his life build up to the point where he was able to say this message to them? And how can we learn to live in such a way today? How can we live our life in such a way that our last words have that kind of weight and influence? Well, let's get into our text, starting in verse 13 of chapter 20. Luke records that before uh, going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. And the next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost." just for some context, uh, those weren't the last words of Paul. That would have been kind of dull. But um, but this is Paul in his travel as he's wrapping up the third missionary journey. You remember he spent three years in Ephesus, and it was no short of a great awakening, teaching daily for six or more hours in the hall of Tyrannus from 11 to 5 or 11 to 4 in the afternoon. He he taught every day for two years uh, uh, entirely in that place. He poured out his life, and, and you'll remember that so many people were touched by the message of the gospel that people were so radically changed that they brought all their magic books and different things like that, and they burned them publicly, and it amounted to about $6 million. It made such an impact. The gospel, life-changing gospel, had such an incredible impact. Jesus's transformative power over the people in Ephesus that it uh, disrupted the business of those craftsmen who were selling little statues of Artemis uh, in, in the Roman pantheon. She is known as Diana. And so it was an absolute miracle and an awakening. But from there, Paul, once that awakening, three-year revival broke up, he went and traveled to Corinth and Athens and Macedonia. And now he's circling back around. He's making the end Uh, of his third missionary journey, and he's called to go to Jerusalem. And so as we get to the last eight chapters of Acts, it's really just Paul's travel from Jerusalem where he ends up at Rome. And so that's really what's ahead of us. Paul's ministry is not um, completely over. He'll have some correspondence ministry. But for the remaining eight chapters of Acts, he's basically in prison or in custody and so we will uh, we'll cover that in weeks to come. But now, verse 17, he is in Miletus. And because he had such an impact in Ephesus, he, he wanted to sail past, he didn't want to go into Ephesus, but he went to a coastal city, and then he sent for the pastors and the elders of the church. In verse 18, it says, When they came to him, he said to them this, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. From the first day that I set foot in Asia except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourself know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And in all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all And they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. Father, this is your word and it is enduring and lasting. And we have here a record preserved by the Holy Spirit of the ministry patterns and an insight into the life that Paul lived, which was wholly consecrated to you. Help us to learn how we may live in such a way that our life matters and that it counts and that it has great purpose, a greater purpose than merely serving ourselves or those whom we know and love. But help us to have a kingdom impact and help us to learn from what Paul, his example and what is written about him here. Use this message for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul's last words had some oomph behind them. And, and if you want your life to have that, there's a certain way in which you should live. There's a challenge for us here in this text. And Paul summarized his ministry up to this point. And um, <clears throat> there are five features that I want to point out about his farewell speech that can inform the way in which you can live. Look at, back at verse 19. <clears throat> Verse 19, it says that Paul uh, described how he served the Lord with humility, with tears, and with trials. And so I would call point one uh, that Paul served the Lord appropriately. If you're going to have a life that has um, an impact, one of the greatest things you can do is wholly resign yourself to serving the Lord appropriately. Paul said he did it with humility. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. He wasn't uh, ambitious in that he wanted glory or fame for himself, but he served with all humility. You'll remember in the Philippians uh, letter that he wrote in chapter 2 to to have this mindset among yourself, which was that of Christ Jesus, that though he uh, was God in the very nature, he he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and made himself a servant. And Paul urged them to have that same mindset of humility uh, he served the Lord with humility. It says he also served the Lord with tears. I don't think that Paul was necessarily an overly emotional person. I think this just means that he served with sincerity, that he served with a sincere passion, with his whole heart. And it, it was done in such a way that it affected his emotions. To the Corinthians, to the Thessalonica, to the Thessalonians, to others, in Paul's epistles, he often writes that with tears... He uh, thinks of them and loves them and wants good for them. I think Paul loved really well, indicated by his sorrow over those believers. It also says that he served the Lord in trials. Through obstacles and adversities and persecutions and beatings and uh, all kinds of things, Paul served the Lord. I think there's a lesson for us here. Oftentimes, people will wait for the perfect circumstances before they offer any sort of meaningful service. So I want you to be encouraged to never assume that your life will line up just right so that you can serve in a meaningful way. Ministry service will never fit neatly into your life. It will never be um, just neat and tidy as you hope it will be. But Paul, through different adversities and obstacles, served the Lord. But I also want you to notice, probably most importantly about his service, not just that he served in humility or with tears or in trials, but but Paul describes his service <clears throat> not as to the people of Ephesus, not as to the people of Macedonia or Philippi or Berea or all these other places. Paul summarized his service as rendered unto the Lord. He wrote this in Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then in verse 23 and 24 of Colossians 3, he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. You understand what an incredible distinction it is to serve the Lord rather than to serve people. There are enough people who are seeking to serve in such a way that other people see them. Jesus said they have their reward in full, but when your father who goes in, who sees what's done in secret, rewards those, the heart of humble service means that everything that you do is done ultimately on the Lord's behalf. If you're going to serve appropriately, you won't just be serving people. You won't be serving a church or an institution or, or some organization. You serve the least of these as though you were serving Jesus himself. Uh, last night, I uh, was touched. I went to a play uh, for my 14-year-old daughter, Lily, at, at Helltown Baptist Church. and uh, the, It was three plays. And the last play uh, described a cobbler in Germany a couple hundred years ago, and his transformation of coming to faith in Christ and being so absorbed with Scripture uh, came to a point when one night he heard the Lord say, uh, the next day I'm going to visit you. And so in his eagerness he woke up and he started looking outside and looking in the street and began to look and wait expectantly for Jesus to come and visit him. Throughout the rest of the play, different people came into his shop. A poor person, a a cold person, a a hungry person, a thirsty person, a, a little boy who was caught stealing apples and the lady was about to throw him into jail. Throughout this entire process, at the end of the day, the cobbler said to Jesus, well, I guess you didn't come today like I dreamed you would. And at the end you hear this verse being quoted that Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these you've done to me. And all four of these individuals came forward. Listen, if you you won't have staying power, if I can just be honest with you, if if you're just serving people or if you're just serving selfishly or with your own concerns in mind, if you're offering any sort of service, you have to serve people as though they were the Lord Jesus Himself. Um When I hear the kids down in the basement and and some of the guys who lead them, um, they would wear out really quickly if they knew that they were just serving these kids or serving you parents in childcare. But But if they offer their services unto the Lord, then they understand that Jesus came for the least of these and that... He says, let the children come to me. And, and every Sunday school lesson they prepare and every prayer they pray and every um, hour that they miss being in the, the sermon part of our service so that they can go and you know wipe noses and, and, and help corral kids, that all of that is not just service to you or to those kids, but ultimately they are serving the Lord Jesus. And that has staying power in the way in which you serve. And Paul rendered his service to the Lord himself. The second thing, not just serving well and serving appropriately, but the second thing that we see in verses 20 and 21 is that Paul did a work of teaching and preaching both the Bible and more narrowly the gospel. It says in verse 20, I did not shrink from teaching and preaching. He says, I didn't withhold anything that would be profitable to you. What was the content of Paul's message? It wasn't just self-help stuff. It wasn't just cultural uh, information or wisdom. It wasn't practical in the sense that he um, was just trying to help them have a better marriage or a better finances or a better parenting. It was the content of his message was the word of God. It says he taught the word publicly and from house to house and preaching the gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're going to have a meaningful and fruitful life of service, don't attempt to do so. Without making the word the primary content of your language. Listen to all these amazing promises that we have about the Word of God. Uh, it's eternal. Matthew twenty four thirty-five, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. First Peter one twenty-five says, The word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Psalm one nineteen one oh five says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Paul wrote to Timothy that it is profitable. He said, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And we read in Isaiah 55 that God makes this promise that His Word will not return void, but it goes out. It's a guarantee. It says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, and so, <clears throat> in such the same way, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. <clears throat> it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Why wouldn't we make something that lasts forever and is true in every culture and in in every circumstance? Why wouldn't we make that primarily the content of our message? A few years ago, I was just a little tired and burnt out after planting Ridgeline for five or six years, and and we drove to Oklahoma for a family uh, weekend there or week. And uh, we got in late, late Saturday night, but my my soul was just tired. And so I got up early the next day and, and I just needed to hear a sermon that I didn't put together. Right? I'm sick of listening to my own sermons and myself preach. I know some of you never can relate to that, but <clears throat> but I just needed to hear the Word. And, and when I went to a local church there and I heard the pastor, he just exposited verse by verse, line by line, word for word, just feeding, cutting up the Word and just feeding it to us. And, and at the end of it, I... Uh, I just was so refreshed. My spirit just needed to hear the word. And, and he, he was faithful to the text and he was faithful. didn't add a lot of embellishment and opinion. He didn't jump off on political issues and cultural rants. And he just taught the word of God. And, and a year or so later, I saw him at a conference and I, I, I encouraged him. And I said, listen, I, I was really tired and, and, and you just taught me something valuable. And he said, oh, I didn't come up with that. He said, an old pastor told me that if you don't feed the sheep, they get restless. And he said that this is the greatest food that we can, um, that we can eat together. And so just teaching the Word, expositing the Word, teaching it in its sense, uh, and giving application is is the greatest thing that you can do to grow a church and to feed believers. Listen, you must use scripture and be faithful to scripture and not misquote scripture and and not use it inappropriately but but be be yourself a student of the word saturate yourself with scripture <clears throat> you can't make scripture the content of your message if it doesn't first run its course through you it's probably one of the hardest things about being a pastor that every week I have to preach something that I I fall short of and every week I have application that has to first go through me before I can faithfully stand up and talk about it. And I don't always do well at that, but there's an effort that we make just in the same way that if you took a dry sponge and you plunged it into a bucket of water and you squeezed it so that uh, when you release it, it absorbs a maximum amount of water, you should daily be plunging your mind into the Word of God and just soaking it up allowing it to so saturate you that people don't know if you're still quoting Scripture or not. You're just speaking uh, the language of the Word. Paul taught and proclaimed the Word of God every day, night and day, without ceasing, telling them everything. And it wasn't just the Bible. He did that, but in... Um, a more narrow sense, it says that Paul proclaimed the gospel in verse 21. That he proclaimed, quote, repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul told people how to be saved. That was the pinnacle of his message of how you can be right with God. How you were separated by God. From God by your sins and didn't have a relationship with him and you were a child under wrath waiting for punishment but Jesus came and he died on behalf of you uh, your sins paying the penalty that you and I deserve for our sins and he rose again showing that God received his payment on behalf of your sins and and those who believe in him are saved scripture says Romans ten nine to 11 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your mouth that you confess and believe and it is with your heart that you believe and are saved. Believing in Jesus was the message that Paul moved people toward. He wanted them to know the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves. There's a third aspect that we see in Paul's life here, and it's probably the most difficult for all of us. And not only did he serve the Lord, not only did he saturate himself with Scripture, but third, he lived a crucified life. Look at verses 22 through 24. Behold I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit not knowing what will happen to me there except the spirit testifies that affliction and imprisonment await me but I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself only that I may finish well That description is a person who lived carrying his cross person who died daily He wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one died for for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. We have evidence that Paul lived his life, accurate testimony that Paul lived his life in a crucified, consecrated way. Listen, if you want to live a meaningful and fruitful kingdom life, you must come to this conviction that Jesus is worth giving your life to. That serving in the kingdom, this is the most uh, important way that you can invest your life. I know that sounds obvious and basic, but but fundamentally in application, none of us want to crawl up on a cross every day, right? None of us want to die to self, die to our flesh, die to our carnal desires, die to our own will and to our own way. And yet the crucified life is the call of Christ, and it is the most significant way that your life can count for something. Jesus said to pick up your cross daily and follow me. D.L. Moody, in 1873, it was told that in Dublin, he heard British evangelist Henry Varley say these life-changing words. He said, The world is yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in one man who is fully and wholly consecrated to Him. He heard that after an all-night prayer meeting in Dublin. And on his way home, Uh, Varley, by the way, never remembers ever making that statement, but Moody heard it, and on the way home, he says, as I crossed the wide Atlantic, Moody said, the boards of the deck were engraved with those words. And when I reached Chicago, all the paving stones seemed marked with them. And the result was that he decided to stop spreading himself thin in so many ministries, and to uh, only concentrate on sharing the gospel with the lost. Listen, D.L. Moody made a massive impact. He made an incredible impact. It was from that one challenge to live a completely and wholly consecrated life to the Lord. What is your life consecrated toward? Is it toward being a good husband or wife or being a good mother or father or being a good friend? Or, or maybe it's to your career and you give everything you've got, waking hours, Late night to providing a comfortable living. You're consecrating your life to something. You are serving something. And I'm here to tell you that, from Paul's point of view and mine and the Bible's point of view, the crucified life is the most satisfying life. Leaving it all on the field, leaving it all on the altar, is the way in which Paul lived. And we see that here in his Ephesus ministry. Now, the fourth aspect of Paul's life, and I think it's a minor point, but an important one to mention because the text mentions it. In verse 32, after all of the um, above section that he had repeated, he, he said, "...and now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up, and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." I tend to think maybe wrongly, but that Paul was kind of wound tight, and that he was a Type A driven person. And oftentimes, when people see a, a try—I mean, a target or an obstacle or a goal—they uh, tend to bulldoze people in order to accomplish something. Uh, Paul, there's not a hint of him being controlling or manipulative, but really just loving people well, and 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 he didn't seem to stress about their outcome. He wasn't trying to mold them into his own image. But in many ways, he let go and he left the results to God. As a matter of fact, he had taught them the Word of God for three years. He had equipped them with the Word. He had equipped them with the Gospel. He had given them everything. And so I think he came to the point of realization when he said, now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace. I think he came to this conviction that in the hands of the Holy Spirit, People can become more than what Paul wanted them to be. He didn't have to... I don't feel a need to to jump into your life and try to make you into something that I have a vision for. If I can teach you the Word and teach you, and, and, and by God's grace, see you give your life to Jesus and be filled with the Holy Spirit, listen, he does a much better job of sanctifying people than I ever could. I don't need to get in the Holy Spirit's way. And so Paul realized and released people... Listen, sometimes we we don't believe that people are better off in God's hands than they are in ours. Sometimes we work into people's lives in such a way that, that hold them back. We see here that Paul released the results to God. He had labored so diligently teaching them the Bible and the gospel that he said, you're in God's hands and he can do more with you than I ever could. And then the fifth thing that we see in Paul's life and ministry from his farewell speech to the Ephesian pastors, in verses 33 through 35, we have this bizarre kind of aside. I didn't, I didn't want your gold or your silver or your clothes. Made, I met my own needs, and, and in all these ways I showed you that by working hard, we must help the weak, and it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul operated in a way that avoided a common pitfall for people in ministry and and really just in life. And that is avoiding greed and personal gain. Money, power, sexual temptation. Paul avoided these pitfalls in such a way that he, he lived a life of integrity that was completely free of covetousness. Uh, This time of year, do you notice how easy it is to covet something? I I never know what I want until I see somebody else has it or a commercial for it, and then I realize, how did I not ever get along with this thing, right? How how have I lived this long? And it becomes really easy to labor for things and for possessions and for material. Paul lived a life of daily ministering to these people, and it would have been really easy for for him to take money and for him to take clothes and for him to, to really kind of take his eye off the ministry by receiving and taking uh, these gifts that people might have given. But but he says here really clearly that he avoided all greed and personal gain. And if you're going to live a life of meaningful service to the Lord and that makes an impact and that is fruitful, lasting into eternity, make sure that you take the precautions to avoid common pitfalls, common pitfalls that each of us fall into. For Paul, he said, I avoided coveting and greed and money and clothes. But for you, it might be fostering a bitter heart, withholding forgiveness and grace from other people. For you, maybe it's a, a pitfall of being a, a gossipy kind of person. For you, maybe it's materialism or, for, or maybe it's a career and comfort. Whatever it is that is a pitfall for you, avoid those things. Always be fresh in your time of confession. I meet with a handful of guys every other week, and we just go through a, a list of things to strengthen us and help us toward purity and accountability and confession. I've had a front row seat to the downfall of, of many uh, believers. I've, I've watched it without... you ever seen a two-year-old running into the corner of a table or something? And you're, I, my reaction was terribly slow. My kids would get bumped and bruised because I would just watch, ina- unable to stop them. In many ways, I've seen believers, and I feel inadequate and unable to stop them from making a train wreck of their life. Listen, we're all capable of falling into sin. If David was listed as a man after God's own heart, and he fell into such a terrible immorality and murder, I think that any one of us are fooling ourselves if we think that we're not capable of walking away from the Lord or uh, somehow committing uh, some terrible sin that would cause us to fall. But you have the ability to avoid temptation. Right? First Corinthians 10.17 says that uh, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And, and God is faithful. That When you're tempted, He will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. God, uh, Jesus even told us to pray, uh, deliver us from temptation, right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are equipped when we put on the full armor of God that we can avoid temptation. Make every effort to do so. And if you find yourself going weeks and weeks and weeks without confession and repentance or without a brother in Christ or if you're a woman, a sister in Christ, someone that you can be really real with and honest with and sincere with and confess your sins to, what you'll find yourself becoming is hardened towards sin. I remember a study from a book called Finishing Strong. uh, And and in that book, um, a pastor in Dallas, a professor at a seminary, <clears throat> found 272 pastors who had fallen into a, adultery and left the ministry, and he asked each one of them, um, "What was it like before you fell? What What were some things that happened?" and And I can't remember all the things, but but I think a few of them were uh, they had stopped having any daily meaningful quiet time with the Lord. They stopped reading the Word. They stopped praying. They stopped being uh, involved. Uh, And to a person, every one of them said, it'll never happen to me. There was a pride that came before the fall. And I I, have not forgotten those things because I've seen so many people fall into these pitfalls. Now listen, God is full of grace. His grace is inexhaustible. For you, he has an, an enormous amount of grace. That means that there's not grace in a bucket and and every day He doles out more grace and at some point the bucket is empty. When it says that He has this inexhaustible grace, it is one of His attributes in which His grace is available to you in abundance. And it's not just grace that saves you, but it's grace that restrains you, it's grace that sanctifies you, it's grace that forgives your sins regularly. Even if you do fall, God is redemptive and He restores people. And I love that about the Lord. Those are five things that we see in Paul's life that enabled him to make this powerful farewell speech. So let me close by saying, encouraging you to live today in such a way that your last words, that your farewell message gives the most glory to Jesus. You've probably seen the picture of the famously misspelled tattoo that says no regurts, right? Live in a such a way that you have no regurts. I think about that. When I think about this passage, that um, you want to live in such a way that you have no regurts. Uh, carry your cross, crucify your flesh, let your life be an offering to God. Romans twelve one through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing, you may discern what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for the hope that You have given us. And most of all, we thank You for a life well lived by Paul. He carried his cross daily. He suffered, He sacrificed, He preached and taught Your Word and the Gospel, and He proclaimed it with tears and with sincerity and through trials as though He were serving You completely. Would You show us in this congregation what it looks like for one man or for one woman to be wholly consecrated to You? To live in such a way that their life is fully uh, given to You? And we pray that we may see it for Your own glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.